you know, the, the assertions uh, that are implied that people of color always have an advantage um, or don't belong because they took someone else's job, I think is, is, a, is a falsehood because, you know, just because you're now, you know, you're in the same class or you're in the same program as somebody who makes that kind of statement doesn't take into account the, the path it took to get there. You know, you're only what you're seeing is the end result. Welcome to Deep Thoughts, Science, and Social Justice, Episode 6. I'm your host, Pardeep, and this is an interview podcast where we take a deep dive into the struggles, triumphs, and personal stories of minorities in the sciences, arts, and public service. The goal of these interviews is to have candid, first-person conversations about the role of race, gender, and socioeconomic status in politics, the sciences, and beyond. As you listen to these undocumented experiences, I hope I demonstrate the value of diversity and recognize the inequities that exist in the daily lives of minorities in this country. On this episode, we'll be talking to Janae Vacharison. Janae serves as the Secretary of the National Black Science Coalition and Institute, also known as BSI. She conducted her undergraduate studies at the University of South Carolina Honors College, where she graduated cum laude and is currently finishing her PhD in neurodevelopment and autism at the USC School of Medicine. She is also involved with the Society for Neuroscience and was awarded as an associate level in the Neuroscience Scholars Program in the Society for Neuroscience and is a Grace John McFadden Professor Program Fellow. She's active in Black and Neuro, Reclaiming STEM 2020, and helped found the STEM Summer Camp with Teen Voice Inc. and South Carolina for Underrepresented Minorities. Janae, I'm so happy you're here. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. You know, on this episode, uh, you know, we'll be covering a lot of things as it relates to diversity in STEM, uh, whether through admissions or or faculty hiring or through the research itself. Uh, we'll be talking about, you know, microaggressions in the workplace. These these like sort of sly language that people use that that are meant to denigrate or minimize your experiences as a, as a minority or person of color. Uh, and also uh, imposter syndrome, you know, when you walk into a room or a conference or your lab meeting and you're the only person of color there, it often makes you feel like an N of one uh, where, you know, you're not supposed to be there, where everyone else seems to be so trained or to be somebody maybe who's similar in age or or, or similar in, in, in education seems to, you know, have more experience or have more training or have more sort of um, be more acquainted with the language associated with a scientific laboratory. And you as or I as as, a, as people of color, when we enter this room, um, we're the only person that we're the only people that look like us in a conference or in your lab or or anywhere else. And this often, you know, makes you feel like an imposter. Like, am I supposed to be here? Do, do my friends and family even know what I do? Like when I try to explain, when I try to explain what I do to my mom, she often just tells people I kill rats for a living because like, she has no idea how to explain science. Uh, you know, yes, like the sort of, there's a part of the scientific research where you have to harvest like the brains or whatever, but that's not like what it's about. And, you know, for me, as, you know, my family came from Guyana and Trinidad, 
And to them, there's only one kind of doctor. You know, there's like the doctor that you go to to like check your blood pressure and check your lungs and 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 whatever. But there's all kinds of doctors out there, and it's not something that they ever really understood. So, you know, let's let's start this episode by defining the word diversity, uh, a definition that we're both comfortable with. So, <clears throat> the word diversity is used in many contexts to mean many different things, and often and unfortunately. Uh, diversity is used as an as a, as an atonym for heterosexual, able-bodied, middle-class to wealthy white males, uh, and that's not always what diversity is. Uh, there are many uh, dimensions to diversity, and these include, but are not limited to, race and ethnicity, gender, disability status, nationality, re- religious affiliation, sexual orientation, socioeconomic background. Every person possesses multiple intersecting identities and the problem emerges when there's a disproportionate representation and even worse uh, when when this disproportionate representation results in bias and structural systemic discrimination uh, and this is also true in the sciences you know scientists love data they love evidence so let's talk about the data and evidence and the data show a clear problem where in 2016, only 9% and 13.5% of science bachelor degrees awarded to African Americans and Latinos, respectively. Um, uh, uh, rather, uh, 9% and 13.5% of bachelor's degrees were awarded to African Americans and Latinos, respectively. And in the same year, only 5% of recipients of doctoral degrees in the science in science and engineering were women from underrepresented minority groups, uh, like African Americans, Hispanic, Latino. You fall into that 5%, Janae. Uh, and um, and uh, you know American Indian or Alaskan Native, and men from those populations accounted for a mere 3.8%. And today, in the U.S., almost 70% of scientists and engineers employed full-time uh, are white, and all this data is from the National Science Foundation. And for this majority, you know, racial harassment, discrimination, or 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 you know, violence are, these are not things that the majority experiences. They're not everyday worries. So, you know, this type of data reflects upon the research grants that are awarded, the portion of research grants, the portion of faculty position, the uh, faculty positions awarded, and also, you know, the papers, the white papers themselves, making them more or less inclusive. You know, this is just like, this this is a sort of widespread cross-cutting issue across all lines. So to kind of start this off, you know, I want I want to talk about you a little bit and and you know where you're from. So I know you're part of BSI. So do you want to give like a brief introduction, you know, about BSI, how you got into it? Uh was there a sort of galvanizing moment where you and your friends got together and said, "Listen, uh you know, I don't like what's going on out here." I'm up in these programs, but you know, there's nobody here that looks like me. Uh, you know, how'd you meet your 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 fellow leaders in BSI and what happened that sort of galvanized you all to get together and organize? What was that moment uh where you all uh decided to take action uh and form BSI? Actually, so um BSI started in 2019 and I joined this year. And what made me join was actually the George Floyd shooting and all the new 2020 civil rights movement that started this year. 
And then actually in Colombia, we had a young black male who was shot by police and he wasn't bothering anybody. And I'm like, that could have been my brother. That could have been my uncle. And I think people need to realize that in the black community, we are kind of like it takes a village is a phrase that um, a lot of people in my community use. We are very connected to our families and our brothers and sisters. So when we see someone of our own race who's experiencing an injustice, it affects us. So what happened is that after a while and the black professor that we do have in our department, luckily said something to our um, leadership, they sent out an email and we're saying we're saddened by this, but I wanted to reach out to the um, African-American graduate students that I knew to just check up on how they were doing. Mm. And there was a range of emotions. Like, of course, um, many people were just exhausted. Um, I was exhausted, but Mm. we decided to do something about it. We were like, okay, these injustices are happening, but how do we make it better for the next round of graduate students coming in? So, um, we formed the USC chapter of the Black Science Coalition, and we were actually going to call it association, but one of my friends was like, we should call it coalition. So I looked up on Google to see if there was anything formed on a more national scale, and there was. And so that's how I joined earlier this year in um, the Black Science Coalition. So that's b-sci.org. Um, they just received their 5013C status in 2020, and they're working to provide professional workshops and meetings. Um, we also run a podcast to highlight different topics in STEM. Like, for example, um, we interviewed someone who creates like motivational music for minorities in STEM. Um, we're having a oh, cool. workshop. Yeah, we're having a workshop in November from. using one of the facilitators from the diversity preview weekend at Cornell. And in that, we're going to also talk about how to deal with microaggressions and imposter syndrome. Um, So we just, rather than being like, oh, this is so saddening. Oh gosh, I'm, I'm in so much pain. We wanted to make things better for the next generation. And that's how we started the USC chapter. And I joined the national chapter. I mean, there's, there's, there's already a lot to unpack there. Uh, well, first of all, like that mo- making motivation music—that's such a cool idea. Because, uh, like, you know, I think music storytelling uh, is really like the best way to communicate with our friends and families about about what's going on. Like, I had a, I had a, I had a buddy of mine uh, on this show recently, and you know, we were having a conversation about like, you know, how do people of color get in touch with, you know, scientific research and understand it. Cause you know, we're in this era of COVID there's a lot of misinformation. There's, you know, this, this virus is disproportionately impacting people of color. And, you know, we're having a conversation about like, you know, why is that, you know, how, how can we like build more trust in, there's a lot of reasons why. Yeah. But you know, how, how can we, you know, build more trust in science so that, you know, our friends and family can, you know, be more willing to take a vaccine or get their information from reliable sources. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of challenges to that, of course. But, you know, one one such way was, you know, storytelling and, uh, you know, relying on 
sort of um, uh, personal personal information about medicine, about about home home remedies, uh, working on working on somebody we know or friends or family, and instead of relying on white papers to to tell the story of how a particular medicine may work, they we much rather listen to people we know uh, who've actually taken it. So. Uh, one medium for storytelling is, of course, music, uh, and and I think I definitely uh, w- want to learn about the, what you're doing with that a little a little later. But let's sort of take it back to um, you know when you got your message from from USC. Uh, you you were talking about a faculty um, faculty at USC who who helped um, prompt your department to send out a a letter. Um, could you expand on that a little bit? Like was it, it was your faculty like generally supportive of the students who wanted to send out a letter and do you feel like the letter was encompassing of what you were looking for in a response uh from your department so and and if um, not like what was it missing i'll be totally honest yeah there were both sides happening at the same time like some people said how they couldn't believe their advisor couldn't even just take a moment to say hey, I understand that this is a difficult time. If you need extra time um, finishing up that paper or running that next experiment, I understand. Or even if they didn't say extra time, just acknowledging, hey, this is happening in our backyards. Mm. Some people just didn't get that at all. I mean, I was lucky to have a nice advisor who did send an email out as well. But at the department level, I think it took a little bit more effort from the African-American professor that we do have in our department to talk to the um, leadership and say, hey, you have some Black students in this department. They need to hear from you. And I think that just Mm -hmm. goes to show why we need to have um, an African-Americans in our institution so we have the ability to have someone there to say hey you guys should do something about this it depends on kind of like the generations of the professors as well Mm. oh yeah oh yeah (laughs) some are really really old school like oh it's all academics oh nothing's going on in the outside world um just do this 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 but yeah. there are a few new professors that realize, hey, people are human beings. So I, my point is that I'm trying to say that I do think times are changing a little bit, but there's still a long way to go. Yo, hashtag woke professors on Twitter. Yeah, let's make it happen. Let's, let's find yeah. out who these woke professors are. But, you know, I definitely share that with you that, you know, some lab leaders might not think that they need to engage in anti-racist action if they personally are not racist. Uh, and, you know, that's just a misunderstanding, you know, of what racism is. You know, it's, it's reinforced by even if you're not personally like uh, even if you your, your, your self-proclamation is, hey, I'm not I'm not racist. So, you know, I, I I'm in the clear that doesn't uh, that doesn't take away the institutional and historical structures that are already in place so it's so it's it's more it's 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 both a feeling and a belief um that are that our structure that our institutions and structures are are biased so um 
so can you talk a, a little bit about like you know that letter that was released from your department because like um uh you know my my own sort of organization um you know at, at when 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 George Floyd was 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 killed um wanted to release a statement as well and at the time we had a very very big diversity problem uh where we just didn't have people of color in leadership and this is something i noticed for a long time and that's 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 changing now through through efforts from the from the diversity committee but when when George Floyd was killed was killed, they wanted to release like a letter of solidarity, which is all good and everything. But you know, I read that thing, and at the end of it, like there was like maybe ten or thirty signatories, but there wasn't a single black signatory on it. And I'm like, guys, guys, like we yeah. can't re- you can't release this without a single black scientist signing it. What is wrong with you? And, yeah, you know, and, and yeah, and they're like coming on to me, like yeah, but you know we. But we like, you know, they're not the only one that cares about this. Da, 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 da. Like we can make some change. I'm like, you're not the one that should be leading this. You know, where the black scientists? Let's get them. Let's get them here. And they're like, oh, you know, they're really stressed out about this. Like, and I'm like, yeah, I understand. You know, and they're like, oh, we'll let them read it after we read it. And I'm like, no, that's not good either, because you're taking them out of the creative process. You're making that decision for them that. You know, after the prose and this and and the writing is already done, then you want to show it to them. This is something that should be normal. You know, these people are our friends and our colleagues, and we we have to be we have to be with them. So you can't. And I tried to stop them from releasing this statement without you know representation. (laughs) But organizations face that problem all the time. Is that when some? It's only when something happens do they take a look in the mirror. And realize that their own population is not sort of representative of, you know, the country uh, and, and of, of what the world looks like. Uh, and it's really saddening when um, it takes such a tragic event for that realization to happen. Yeah. Um, on that note, I actually sent an e- because the um, director kind of reached out to everybody. And I actually, I was in an emotional state and I'm surprised that he let me say this, but I was like, that's great that allies want to help and everything, but it's not the same when you're a member of a different race, seeing people being um, undergoing systemic racism and going oppressed. It's a little bit different when it's your actual race and it's been happening to you. Mm. So I was able to like say that beforehand, and luckily they did have a black professor who is a part of the diversity committee that we formed here. But um, he did finally, okay, maybe I shouldn't say finally, but he did take that into account, I think. But I definitely still do see how it's like 90% and the one person of color who is on the diversity committee, but it's better than zero. So um, I feel like here, of course, they give the general USC is committed to diversity and inclusion. Um, And I think that they do have programs that are set to help increase diversity. But I think the problem is a little bit with the advertisement of these programs. For example, like I didn't know that there was a black professor program until I was in like 
heading into my second year of my PhD. And I'm like, I've been here for a bit. Nobody ever mentioned this to me. <laughs> like, I just feel like it's great that they have these programs, but they need to highlight them more so people actually know what's going on. And I feel like it's great to just have that statement we hear so many times. We're committed to diversity. I'm like, that is great. But we're you need to see actions. Like words only mean so much. It's great that you send uh email. That does help. It does let us know that hey, you recognize that we are here and we're contributing to the community campus. But I think you need to see like tangible events that occur after that email. Otherwise, what was the point of sending that nice, well-written email in the first place? Yeah. And it's like when the university wants to, you know, be diverse and inclusive and they send you a brochure, you know, they send you a brochure with pictures of students, probably stock photos of people uh, you know, they got the black person, they got the brown person, they have like, you know, every color of the rainbow uh, in their little advertising brochure. But then once you get there, it doesn't really look like that. So, you know, you, 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 you talk a little bit about, you know, how you had a black professor to 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 be an ally. And I think that's such a great experience. Uh, you know, HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities, make up just 3% of U.S. colleges and universities, but they produce 27% of all black scientists with, with bachelor's degrees in STEM. And whenever a university, you know, says that whenever a university has a diversity problem uh, and they make this sort of, and their, and their reasoning is that, oh, we have a diversity problem because you know, black and brown students aren't applying or black and brown students aren't like <laughs> qualified or something stupid like that. They, I, they, they, they often ignore like the data, you know, universities like HBCUs, you know, they, their production of black, of, of, of black scientists with STEM degrees is, 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 is overrepresented rep relative to all the overall universities, uh, represented, uh, relative to universities overall. So, you know, I think that, that, you know, colleges, HBCUs specifically are, you know, have, have the sort of university culture in place where they can, where they can, uh, uh, you know, motivate, I, I, I don't know about motivate, but they, they have like a sort of the type of environment where students of color can, can excel, uh, can, can excel where you know universities that have an issue with diversity and, and people of color graduating don't have that kind of environment. I'm not sure if I'm if this question is making any any sense, but I, no, I'm trying it, to. It does. It definitely does. Um, could, could you could you help me like form what I'm trying to say? Because I feel like you you get what I'm you're, saying, but <laughs> you're trying to say that when you have um, people that look like you. Um, especially when they're like ahead of you and showing that they're doing well, you feel more encouraged and you feel like a lot uh, yeah, yeah. to keep going. And I was reading this paper by like Dr. Hansen, I think, and she did a study and it said that um, African-American women feel the most encouraged at HBCUs. And I think that's because we get to just talk like how we want to talk. Like we don't have to like, 
sound proper all day and like we can talk about injustices without feeling like somebody is judging us or worrying that it may be looked down upon that we're talking about this. Um, and honestly, like I started to feel more comfortable after I found out about this black professors group because we talked about stuff, honestly, I would never imagine I would be able to say in a college setting. Like, I kept all that in for a good, like, year and a half, or if you count, like, my undergraduate, many years. I, And it's hard to just, like, experience these events and feel like you have to stay quiet. Like, did somebody really just say that to me? Like, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Was that okay? Um. And then, like, you're looking around, and it's just, like, why am I the only one in here? Like, I just sit in a class. I literally turned around, like, searching. <laughs> Sometimes I'm like, oh, it happened again. It's me, myself, and I. <laughs> and, you know, like, it, what, it's, it's hard to, like, e- imagine yourself being successful when you don't see people like you that are successful. And yeah. a lot of... A lot of these companies and universities are very like bottom heavy on people of color, but then in leadership positions, on leadership positions, it's it's what you would expect. It's it's straight white males, and um, and so you know the more you sort of rise and uh, up the corporate ladder or up the academic ladder, or whatever, you start to see less and less people that 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 look like you and can relate to you, and you start to feel more and more like you know like an end of one. And American colleges were built by and for white elites. And today they're overwhelmingly led by white presidents and administrators with a majority of white faculty. Um, and racial, you know, integration and diversity have largely been products of, you know, legal challenges uh, or ch- uh, rather than changes of the hearts and minds. And although it seems that diversity is talked about on every college campus, the meaning is, you know, hollow. You know, allowing students of color uh, into otherwise white campuses doesn't really do anything to change the racial climate. Um, you know, you can have racial diversity, but without, but without, uh, without true racial inclusion and racial equity. And I think that uh, unless this changes, you know, we're, the problems that we have today aren't really going to go away. Problems like uh, minority retention in the sciences. You know, people who enter STEM but then leave at some point. Uh, what we need are people of color to enter and stay in STEM to have long and productive careers, to be mentors, to to give back, to go back to their community and show them that that science is the real deal. You know, Harvard's class of 2021, for example, uh, you know, 30% of their graduating class of 2021 are legacy students. So they legacy students like they their grandparents or their parents or their brother or whatever attended Harvard before them. And, you know, they've admitted that this is a big deciding factor when you uh, have students come to Harvard is do do they have like families that that attended Harvard before them? And that's how these universities establish these dynasties of money, uh, families of money, where they, you know, oh, your your grandfather, you, your your mother, y'all went to Harvard, here, donate to our programs. But, you know, or even Georgetown, for example, and this one really bothers me, like back in 2017, Georgetown University admitted to, um, you know, when this when that campus was first built, you know, it was built, uh, I, I forget the exact history, but the owners of the university at the time, you know, had had an owned uh, 
you know, enslaved peoples. And uh, to pay off the, the renovations for the campus they were doing at the time, they had, um, uh, you know, sold off their enslaved peoples uh, in order to pay off their construction debts. And it wasn't until 2017 that Georgetown University finally admit that that they that they used to be slave owners. And, you know, throughout this entire time, uh, Georgetown didn't didn't admit this and were continually propagating their own crimes. And it wasn't until, you know, uh, 200 years later or more that they finally take take uh, repent for their for their actions. And since then, you know, they tracked down the descendants of these individuals and offered them admission and free room and board as as a as a sorry note. And even as as late as 2020, Columbia, for example, the uh, the University Medical Center in New York, uh, there's a there's a residence hall there called Bard Hall, and Bard he's one of, he's one of the founders of the med school, and he he and he had uh, uh, enslaved peoples working for him as well, and it wasn't until uh, this year where Columbia acknowledged this and decided to change the name of their of their residence hall. So you know I think. Uh, you know, we're trying to change a system that has been around for so long and propagated by, you know, the people who are in charge. So, you know, when when we come face to face with these issues to find an ally, you know, like like your professors, I think is such a gift, such a gift um, for somebody to understand, you know, what you're going through. And I think that's where it starts, honestly. Yeah, I, I th- honestly think for anybody listening that peer mentoring is like the way to go. Um, I just wanted to mention that. Yeah, there you're right. Um, about the whole legacy thing. We even have a legacy program at our university. I'm just like, well, that's kind of messed up. Uh, and especially because like an African American community, a lot of people are first generations still. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's this study from the NIH catalyst uh, a couple years ago that said like, we have African-American students interested in high school, but this isn't fully feeding through the pipeline. You see less in the undergraduate call. You see less in grad school. You see less as professors and you see less as leadership. And I think that is because of a lot of the issues in the African-American community kind of like overlap and feed on each other. Because, like, if we don't have as many people in the community that can provide assistance in getting to college or getting through grad school, um, just because, like, no one has done it yet, it makes it more difficult than someone who has a parent who is a professor and knows to buy, like, the expensive SAT prep or, like, has the Mm -hmm. connections they know so they can put their child in those, like, early high school STEM programs and research at a university and like make their personal statements and their applications super great because they knew how to check off every single box possible to get their child into school. And I just feel like because more and more people are having a bachelor degree to get the better job, you need a more advanced degree. And so if we don't have as many African-Americans going in these advanced programs at colleges, then this also hurts the African-American community socioeconomically. Um, And then to top on top of that, I feel like a lot of people don't know about like all the various STEM jobs. Like I'm finding out just right now, wow, this title, there's like 
associate directors of intelligence at this company. <laughs> I didn't know that existed. I'm like, I'm like, what? I, I'm like, wow, I'll be 30 soon. Like, what? This exists. And I'm just finding out about that now. But like, I can't even imagine someone who's not in a program and hearing about these events. I feel like people, there needs to be more outreach. Mm. Um, and because even some of the outreach that I do see, it's great that you're doing a STEM camp, but I'll just be honest, usually they go to the fancy schools and I'm like, that's great. But the people that really need help are the ones in like lower economic areas. Yeah. I know it may be more difficult because they may have problems at home or other things co-occurring while they're trying to get their education. So they may not just sit there quietly through the whole thing. But I feel like what needs to start happening is more programs that have the courage to go out to like the group homes and like the lower socioeconomic areas and invite them to these um, university events. Because I'm just going to be honest, usually it's like the professor's daughter that's there, you know, like, uh, it's it's never like the people that actually need it at some of the STEM camps. Um, I have seen a few changes, I will admit that, but it's still, there's just a majority of you see the disparity of who gets into these programs, and it just feels like it feeds on each other each step. If they don't get into the program then, then it's harder to get into the next step, and it's harder to get into the next step. Mm-hmm. So I feel like we need more people to go out into the community and say, hey, I was able to do this. Yes, I felt super discouraged a long part of the way until I actually like openly talked to like some of my black friends on campus. Um, and I will admit there are some great allies as well, but um, there are certain things that honestly... I can't speak for every black person, but I feel like black people do feel more comfortable talking to members of their own group about. So Mm -hmm. um, in general, I just feel like we need to change the perspective on who should be getting into these STEM programs rather than just saying, oh, they're from blank family. That's a good family. We should let Uh them in. We need to like reach out more to get like actual cultural diversity. And, you know, we're, we're talking about, we're talking about pipelines, pipelines for science jobs. And, you know, I think like, I agree, like it has to start at, at the grassroots level. Like uh, the people who need these opportunities the most are the ones in these are, are, are the ones from the communities that need it. And, you know, I had a buddy, I had a buddy of mine, uh, you know, he's a, he's a prominent black scientist at a, um, pharma company I used to work for and um and uh you know during every year like these large pharma companies they do like intern programs or fellows programs or whatever so companies like you know Genentech Regeneron you know these these you know Pfizer these really big pharma companies every summer or every like winter they bring in interns and oftentimes the way they uh bring these interns in is through word of mouth or they draw and by interns, I mean like high school students or undergrads, 
and they bring these interns in through like word of mouth or, you know, the, the boss's boss was like, hire this person. He's a friend of the family. She's a friend of the family. Bring him in. And these are people who are already like attending really privileged universities, really elite universities who are given these opportunities. But when they come through, it's like they're not even motivated to like, they're not even like grateful that they get to be at this like be an intern at this great pharma company they're just kind of there it was just kind of handed to them in a way and, and there's almost no incentive to to do a good job because you are just kind of given the opportunity without any work and you know i feel like um you know i feel like uh uh you know uh, uh what's it called like i feel like um uh this whole like word of mouth recruiting really hurts you know people of color because it's the word of mouth recruiting is done by the leaders and the leaders are not from these places. And, you know, like when you're sort of interacting with your PI or your, or your boss or at your, at your job or, or, or in your science job or wherever, and they're not from the place you're from, they can't really understand what you, what you're, what you're going through. And, you know, man, like th th this one really bothered me. Like when I was, um, you know, I was applying for a, um, so my my one of my old labs back in back in grad school, uh, he had like an R one you know you know NIH grant like they all do, but there was like a minority supplement that you as a student can apply for to add another like forty fifty grand to the grant to support you know the student of color, and you know strike one for this PI because uh, uh, I ended up leaving the the lab, but strike one was when I wanted to apply for this minority supplement. And he's like, okay, you know, go ahead, apply. I guess I'll help you. He didn't really help me. But part of the minority supplement grant stated, you know, a question, you know, what what makes you part of a marginalized community uh, that qualifies you for this grant? And I'm like, okay, there we go. Now I get to use my my sort of background as a person of color to apply for a research grant. And when I, and when I wrote it out, like a paragraph about, oh, you know, like grew up with a single mother in Brooklyn, you know, impoverished background and all these things. He read it. And he's like, what is this? You know, why'd you put this in? <laughs> I'm like, because it asked for it and it's a minority supplement. He's like, no, take it out. It's, this is not the type of stuff that wins grants. Uh, so that was really hurtful because it showed me that there's no love, you know, in, in writing these grants that they don't care about, you know, how your 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 life experiences shaped your worldview uh, and how you pursue science, which I think is really important. It's, you know, it was a very sterilizing experience. So that was strike one for this guy. Uh, strike two, and this is after I left the lab, but, and it was more recent where it was during COVID where I had, um, where, um, uh, I, at the time, like I, I was, I, some friends of mine, uh, other like really great scientists, we got together and opened a, um, a COVID-19 testing lab that was doing free testing. So we, we got the we got the clear certification, the lab permits, the funding, the supplies, all for free and and all volunteer based to do free COVID testing, to do free COVID testing in Brooklyn, and um, and my PI at the time, not not PI, but like the, the, this same guy who I was still collaborating with was like, you know, why are you, why are you wasting your time like you know doing testing in this community? They have nothing to do with you because I was devoting a lot of time to opening this testing lab, more time than I was like devoting to my like actual job. And he was like, you know, why you, why you, why you like wasting your time with that? You should be focused on this neuroscience research. Uh, and I'm like, dude, you know, this is like my neighborhood. This is where I was born and raised. 
And it's kind of insulting that you tell me that I shouldn't worry about them. Opening this lab is a big accomplishment. Can't you see that? And it's really like sly language that a lot of these people in power use to kind of bring you down. And this is where I kind of want to transition into microaggressions. Uh, the sly language that people use to, to which that, that have really uh, large meaning behind it. So let's start, let me sort of define the microaggressions uh, uh, so that we sort of work from the same definition. Um, you know, a married Webster describes microaggressions as a comment or action that subtly uh, and often subconsciously and or, or often unconsciously or unintentionally express prejudice attitude towards a member of a marginalized group uh, or a racial minority. And perpetrators of microaggression are often unaware that they engage in such communication when they interact with uh, racial ethnic minorities. And historically, definitions of microaggressions have been anchored in a race, but uh, often come with gender disabilities and other attributes. And there's all kinds of microaggressions out there like colorblindness, for example. So uh, statements where, you know, people do not want to acknowledge race. So quote, for example, when somebody says to you, when I look at you, I don't see color. Uh, what this is really doing is denying a person's racial or, or, or ethnic experiences. Or when somebody says there's only one race, the human race, uh, this is also denying an individual's racial and cultural being. Or another kind of microaggression is the myth of meritocracy where uh, statements uh, that assert that race doesn't play a role and doesn't play a role in life successes. Like when somebody says to you, quote, I believe the most qualified person should get the job. And what this is saying really is people of color are given unfair, unfair benefits because of their race. Or when somebody says uh, everyone can succeed in this society if they work hard enough, what this is really saying is that people of color are lazy or incompetent and need to work harder. Um, or, you know, or denial of individual racism. And so, you know, I think um, the this really like sly language is how like they take you out, you know, it's like how they, they it, like microaggressions to in my, my personal view on that is like, it's like really sly ways of getting people to sit down or quiet down or move them out. And this I, I'm not sure like have you have you experienced have you had moments where you've experienced like where someone yeah. said something to you that made you I guess uncomfortable that had like racial undertones or gender undertones but that was presented in a really friendly kind of nonchalant way um, have you had experiences uh, uh, with this in your program or 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 anywhere else yes I I definitely have and it's you're just kind of taken aback for a moment, but I'll go ahead and explain kind of what happened. We were talking about how the university is diverse and we have this prep program for underrepresented minorities. We were talking about how the university is diverse and how we have this prep program that allows underrepresented minorities an opportunity to get into research before they go to grad school and hopefully then move on as a grad student in the program. And this person responded like, my family works hard. I don't understand why you guys, oh, I, my family works hard. I don't understand why you guys need that program. And I just kind of stood there silently because I was in shock. 
I mean, I work hard. My family works hard. And then they almost went on to insinuate that was the only reason that I was here. Mm. And first of all, I got really salty. One, because I'm like, hold up. I got in through the regular program. (laughs) But, and like, just because you go through this program doesn't mean anything. Because like, honestly, they have the same thing. They have their parents that say, hey, go into this research at this college. It's just that sometimes when you're a part of a group that doesn't have access to this, you need a program that has the ability to advertise and tell the community about this. So I was just really taken aback by this. And honestly, I didn't even know how to respond. So that's when I wanted to like, figure out how do I respond to microaggressions? Because I feel like when you just let it pass, then nothing gets better. Like I saw this Toni Morrison quote that said something along the lines of we speak, we write, we do language and that's how civilizations heal. And that's kind of like how I want to like address microaggressions from this point on, because some people don't even realize how, messed up it is what they just said or some people try to pass it off as a joke and i think people need to realize that's not okay and that it's not a joke yeah it's not it's never funny yeah i'm like it's really not funny and then like the other issue is with me as an african-american female if i do respond then their next thing is like oh it's the angry black woman stereotype Mm. i'm like no you just said something terrible (laughs) like what and I just feel like having to deal with these little microaggressions, they add up over time and it does cause unneeded stress and emotional injury on top of the fact that being in STEM can already be stressful on its own. And, you know, statements like, quote, the most qualified person should always get the job or statements like those that work hard win in the end. I guess they're fair statements, but I think there are also ones that any reasonable person would agree that uh, that any there are statements that any reasonable person would agree. However, in in many STEM fields that have extremely low numbers of women and minorities because of historical reasons, uh, uh, because of because of so um. Many STEM fields have extremely low numbers of women and minorities because of historical reasons. So there are certainly actions uh, in place to level the playing field. But ironically, uh, numbers that are so that are still drastically low, but but the numbers are still drastically low. So you know the the assertions uh, that are implied that people of color always have an advantage um, or don't belong because they took someone else's job, I think is is a is a falsehood because you know just because you're now, you know, you're in the same class or you're in the same program as somebody who makes that kind of statement doesn't take into account the the path it took to get there. You know, you're only, what you're seeing is the end result. You're seeing, you know, when, when you, when you're watching like, you know, I don't know, the Emmys or the BET awards or whatever, and you see people accept these awards and they're so grateful. You're, what you're seeing is like the end result. You're seeing after all, what you're seeing is all the, all the hard work it took to get to that point, to get to your PhD, to get to your program. However, not everybody, you know, took the same road or started at the same playing field. Like, 
you know, people who went to public school, like I, like I, you know, like I did, oftentimes we didn't have like graduate level science teachers or state of the art laboratories to show us how to use a pipette or to show us like how to do statistics. Meanwhile, my peers, you know, their parents and their mother were professors and they're walking around their parents' lab since they were a kid and they can put that in their personal statements. Uh, oftentimes, like, you know, we don't have people to teach us how to write personal statements or what counts what counts as something to put on a resume? Uh, you know, a lot of children, you know, who are from sort of uh, uh, maybe middle class to to uh, wealthy backgrounds, they when they're building a CV or a resume for college, anything they do is for the purpose of building a CV. While me, as a kid, things I was doing, I think I just thought they were fun. I didn't really think that I would use these experiences to build a CV on. You know, I remember when I was applying to um to to college, I was working at like a pizzeria for for uh you know for like basically my entire high school career. And I I asked my guidance counselor, like, does that count? Like, can I put that on my resume? I, and she was like, Yeah, of course you can. And I thought I was just working there to support my family, uh, because you know, I was growing up with a single mother. We often didn't have uh enough money to, to get by. And so you know, I think people are looking at, you know, the the disadvantage that uh, individuals already start from, whether it's uh, attending public school or not having the, the, the SAT training programs or GRE training programs, having to raise a family, for example, or or having to worry about food or health care. When people are fighting these really like daily battles, you can't always focus on the future and make the investment for the future. I mean, you know, there, there, there are people who, um, you know, I, I, I think like when you're just struggling for oxygen to make it to the next day, you're not investing in, you know, the SAT training program or, or applications to get into a grade school. You're worried about, can I make it next week or the week after you're focused on more short-term battles when you have really limited resources. Uh, and you know, Individuals who have been through like struggle like that, I think universities are really lacking, uh, which is why I think they don't really understand what we go through. Um, yeah, I mean, I I feel like um, those people that end up saying like, oh, if you work hard, it's okay, don't realize that some people are a quarter mile from the finish line, but some people are like ten miles starting away from the finish line because they have so many other things just to survive in that moment that they have to do first. So yes, they can be working hard at the same exact level, but if you have started from a place that was just farther away than the person next to you, then just because you're working hard doesn't mean anything that they're trying to get across in that weird uh, comment that they said. And I think that's what people need to realize is that, um, especially because of the history of the United States, I feel like that's where it stems from why some of the things are the way they are in the black community. Because, um, for example, we couldn't get um, housing applications and mortgages approved the same yeah. as like our white counterparts. Yeah. Therefore, you're just paying money to somebody else over and over and that stems with the whole socioeconomic crisis in the black community. But um, moreover, back to relating how, like, how that happens in STEM, we're, me too. I mean, I grew up with a single mom. Like, 
I, I sometimes thinking like, hey, how do I help feed my brother tonight? Because she is working two jobs just to yeah. keep the house that we're in. Um, you're not sitting there thinking about how do I save $2,000 for a prep SAT course? That money has to go to other places. And I feel like a lot of people just have lived in their own bubble so much that they don't realize that there are people that don't just have the cash to throw out for college prep, even though it's important. And I feel like if we had more people that come from the same background as um, lower socioeconomic groups in leaderships, then maybe there could be more policies in place to like address in the application. Oh, wow. They also had to deal with these co-occurring events while still getting into college. And, you know, it's like, None of this and all these changes that we that 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 we're you know fighting for, uh, you know, it, it, it wasn't that long ago where you know the Civil Rights Act or the Voting Rights Act or affirmative action these were passed during the Lyndon B. Johnson administration, and since then you know there have been constant battles to take these away from people of color. And tell me, like, how? How bad is it when it requires like the Supreme Court of the United States and and laws to be made just to be treated the same way as anyone else, where there has to be legal action before anybody changes their hearts and minds? And this, I think, is 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 uh, a testament to, to to the fact that if you want to make change, it's it's got to be through the structural and legal uh, uh, framework as opposed to changing people's hearts and minds. While that's important, um, I think the, the changes we've, we, uh, we've seen have, have always been uh, legally so that people, and it's only now that we're starting to see uh, the effects of that, where we're seeing higher graduation rates for people of color of, of, from high school and college and university. We're seeing um, less dropout rates, more people uh, getting jobs and staying in jobs and building wealth and equity. Right, uh, building inheritance to pass on from one generation to the next. Uh, uh, we're seeing like retention of income. Finally, uh, at, at, uh, you know, decades after uh, these laws are passed, you know that it, it sure it certainly wasn't a one shot cure. But um, but we're now seeing the effects of these laws, even though people are constantly trying to tear it down. Uh, and I think you know it's it's the it, it, it's there's still more there's still more to fight for you know all of this I think the the grassroots change will ultimately uh, change the entire field you know it'll change the uh, admissions process it'll change the research that that's produced it'll change the the who gets hired for faculty it'll change the it'll change what we see when we imagine a scientist from you know the old white guy in a lab coat to maybe a woman of color. Or, 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 or another person of color or somebody who's racially ambiguous. Uh, and, you know, this type of change, I think, takes a lifetime and, and, and mentorship uh, and, and building relationships with, 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 with mentors and, and people who have been there. So, yeah. So I just wanted to say that I feel like what's really important when choosing a program is to make sure you have that peer mentor, somebody there that can 
patch your back or you can talk to them whenever you're just feeling a little bit low at where you're at. Um, I just want to encourage people that even if things begin to feel disparaging, keep going because the payoff is worth it. Like, let's just be honest. STEM jobs are where a lot of the money is at. Mm. So um, I just want to say that even though the percentages are fewer than our white counterparts, there are black STEM successes and there are some research projects that are focused on the black community and that you guys can be a success too. Um, I just want to say also that I think the black community needs to know about these opportunities and people that are running these STEM camps need to have the courage to go out to the communities that may not be thought about first. Like don't go to the STEM magnet school that already has all the funding to teach the students, like go out to maybe the lower income areas and invite them, go out to the group homes, go out to the communities that need it. If you really want to change um, the background of the individuals that we have in STEM. I also think the other thing is that people don't know that tuition and living expenses are covered when you go to for graduate school in STEM. Like, I didn't know that growing up at all. Like I recently found out about that. I was like, oh, that sounds great. I think that needs to be a selling point as well and tell people that just apply. Like even if you don't think that you'll get in, it's better to apply than to not apply at all. Another thing I think that is important are having those financial aid supplements but it needs to extend also not just to like the college application fee. It needs to extend to the prep courses. Mm. Like there needs to be more free SAT prep courses, for example, and there needs to be more free programs that go out to these community and tell people about grad school and STEM being free once you are free in a sense. Um, because you're not paying for tuition, the school pays for it, and they provide you with a stipend. I think people really do need to know that. So, um, and I just want to say that if they want to get involved with the Black Science Coalition, um, we're here also to just provide general advice on how to get into graduate school. If you need a mentor that's further along in the field. We have people here for you. Um, And the website again is b-sci.org. So that's b-sci.org. It's the Black Science Coalition and Institute. If you Google it, Um, we have like Instagram where we do like a historical black scientist. Um, And we have other workshops coming up like our one in November that's going to be talking about how to deal with microaggressions in life as an underrepresented minority in STEM. If people have questions about that, is there a way they can get in touch with you, like on Twitter or or Instagram or something like that? Or are you willing yes. to respond to that? So I love social media. Um, <laughs> I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Um, my Twitter is at Janae, J-C, that's J-A-N-A-Y-J-C. Um, my Facebook has just been changed to my new married name, Janae Vatrasen. So Vatrasen is 
B-A-C-H-A-R-A-S-I-N. Um, I also have an Instagram, and <laughs> honestly, it's still my old little nickname. It's at Arcieta, and that's at A-R-C-I-E-T-A. So, yeah, if you want to reach out to me, feel free. Um, we also have a contact us form on our um, B-Sci page. But if you want to reach out to me directly, I'll add you on Facebook. Give me a little at on Twitter. Um, I'm totally open to that. I'll, I'll be the first one to, to hit you up on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so with that, Janae, I, I thank you so much, so, so much for your time and for this conversation. You're welcome to come back anytime. And thank you for having me. Yes, thanks, Janae. I will talk to you soon. I'm looking forward to talking to you again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Deep Thoughts, Science, and Social Justice. I love doing these podcasts, so be sure to give it five stars on whatever platform you're listening on. And be sure to follow the Instagram, Deep Thoughts Podcast. That's deep underscore thoughts underscore podcast on Instagram. I post almost every day. I post all the updates there. That's where you can reach me. Shoot me a DM sometime. If you're interested in being on the show, email deepthoughtsinterview at gmail.com. I would love to have you on and love to learn about your story and what you're about. And stay tuned for future episodes we have activists scientists and public servants coming through to talk about their lives and their struggles and to tell some of their stories so be sure to stick around for the next episode thank you so much